1 Peter chapter 4. We are looking at verses 1 through 12. 1 through 11, actually. 1 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 through 11. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that through, though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Verse 7. The end of all things at hand, Peter writes, Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks, oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And then he gives a doxology. In all, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory, dominion forever and ever. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Holy Word this morning. Let's pray one more time if we can. Father, just thank you for your word. As we look to it, Lord, we, we ask that you would um, open our heart. Uh, God, we, we want to see Jesus. We want to be transformed like Jesus. Not just information. We're looking for transformation. That the Spirit of God would strengthen our hearts. That we would be more like Christ. Because we've gathered and worshipped together as your people. Lord, we pray uh, for those who are here that may not know you. We ask that your heart, that your spirit would open their hearts so that they would see truth and turn to Christ. And we ask your blessing on our time. In Jesus' good name, amen. Kids, you are dismissed. And we are in First Peter. I'm thirsty today. What a timely letter. What a timely letter. It really has been an encouragement to me. And, you know, this letter was written so long ago, in the early 60s A.D., but so applicable today. You know, Scripture says to us that the Bible is active. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing in the divisions of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I've been encouraged. I've been rebuked. This week was one of those rebuked weeks. I'll explain to you later on. Uh, that I had to continue to look at my own life and make some changes in it. So far we've learned that God is the author. God is the provider. God is the protector. God has the power to sustain and to keep and to protect the inheritance in which He has given us in the gospel. Salvation. He alone has the power and to keep us until Christ returns until we, or until we step out of this world into our eternal home with Christ. 
And while we're here on this side of heaven, Paul wants to instruct us that we are to, to live our life in such a way that reflects our faith and our hope that's in God. You see, if our eyes are pierced on, if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, our true hope of the truth of His eternal kingdom that is coming, it will have a major impact on the way you live your life. That's what Peter's saying. In the first, couple of ch- in the first chapter, a couple of verses, he lays out the salvation. And after that, he's given us practical application of what that really looks like. He said we have to live devoted lives. We're supposed to be separate from sin and devoted to Jesus. We're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to be good missionaries uh, sharing the gospel in the fallen world. We're supposed to submit to governing authorities. We're supposed to submit to our bosses. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, honor and love your wives as the weaker vessel. But in, even in all that instruction, nothing compares to when one suffers as a means of showing the world that God is enough And that our ultimate hope and joy is in Christ. And let me say this to you as well this morning. I share, whenever I do premarital counseling, I always look at the couple and I always tell them that, you know, when you guys argue and fight, I know some of you married couples never argue and fight, uh, when you argue and fight and you have conflict in your lives, you can look at it as a way to which. You're, you, you separate and which causes wedges in your marriage, or you can look at it as a good steward that God has given you conflict so that you can grow deeper in your faith and more intimate with your spouse. Depends on how you look at it. I would want them to look at it as being a good steward, that God has brought conflict in your life so that you can grow in Him and grow in intimacy with Him and with each other. As we've been looking at this topic of suffering... I hope that we can come to the, to the topic or to the, you know, the reality that we suffer and are persecuted and there's pain and hardship in our world as being a good steward. That no suffering, no pain, no persecution doesn't come to you either by the hand of God or at least through the hand of God. That God is sovereign over the world. And you could take comfort in knowing that God loves you and God cares about you and that God is ruling and reigning. And Romans tells us all things work together for good for those who love Him and called according to His purposes. So that when suffering comes and we trust God, we're willing to submit to Him in our suffering, He looks glorious. He is seen as the one you are putting your trust in. We receive comfort and joy. Even at times when we suffer for things, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, that we've done to ourselves. There's self-inflicted suffering. Everybody say amen because we've all done it, right? Shoot ourselves in the foot. But when there is confession afterwards, when there is repentance afterwards, when there is humility afterwards, which I hope there is, that that brings God glory. So in the midst of all kinds of suffering is an opportunity for us to be a good steward what God has given us, like I said, by His hand or through His hand, so that He gets glory and praise. One of the best definitions of what it means to glorify God, what does that mean? John Piper again. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. That means in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of pain, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of excruciating pain, you cry out with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? 
And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you, though my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I say all this because Peter's going to end our time together today with these words. The very last part of chapter chapter 4, verse 11. In order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And amen. That means nothing to us unless you have a hope in Him. A deep conviction and assurance that our sins are forgiven and eternity where there is no more pain, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more persecution, no more suffering. Seeing things in a backdrop of eternity is so important. And the hope that we have in Christ. Why? Verse 22 of chapter 3, the last uh, verse we looked at last week, says this, because Jesus has gone into heaven, right? He suffered for sins just for the unjust. And he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Family, we could believe that or refuse to believe that. But I'll tell you this, if you believe that about the future and you believe him who holds the future, it will make a huge difference on how you perceive and handle suffering. Jesus, according to the scripture that I stand on, is at the right hand of the Father, indicating all authority and all power belongs to Him. And because He's at the right hand of the Father, your suffering can be a means for you to bring God glory and become more like Jesus. Which brings me to my first point, called Sanctified Suffering. Sanctified Suffering, it's the title of our, of our series in First Peter. But Peter writes in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Because Christ suffered in the flesh. What does he mean by that? He says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, it was the pathway, which we just looked at in verse 22, it's the pathway to victory and exaltation, right? I mean, he trusted his Father, he obeyed the Father, and then he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, received victory and exaltation, therefore... You, brothers and sisters, arm ourselves or arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So just like Jesus, we should approach suffering as an opportunity to trust, an opportunity to heed, an opportunity to obey the will of God. Now listen to this verse. You don't turn it with me. I got it right here. But it's Hebrews chapter 5. This, just listen to this verse. Hebrews chapter 5. We talk about suffering and obedience, Christ's suffering, exaltation. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 says this. Unbelievable verse. In the days of his flesh, that's the incarnation, talking about Jesus, Jesus, while he was walking the earth, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, the Father, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. All right. Verse 8. Although he was a son, although a son, really in the Greek, although a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Although a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Not like we do, right? We're hit and miss. Sin, don't sin. Like we suffer for different reasons, right? Jesus is perfect. So he learned perfect obedience through all his suffering. He didn't falter. He didn't fail. He didn't blow it like we do. But still, he learned 
through suffering. And the term arm yourself, he's telling us to arm yourself in that way, he says it's a military phrase, a picture of a soldier who putting on equipment and arming himself for battle. And here Peter is saying, put on the armor like a good soldier, emulate Jesus, be prepared to embrace suffering as part of your orders in the army, get yourself ready for it. And like Jesus who suffered to do away with sin, we are to do away with sin. He writes, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased, look what it says, has ceased from sin. Let me roll this all the way through so I can get you. Okay. Has ceased from sin. Suffering, Peter writes, can cause sanctification. Stop you from sinning. It doesn't always do that because sometimes when we suffer, suffer, we look for reasons to sin. And we want to just do what we want and get what we want and sin against those who've harmed us, say. We're suffering, we're in persecution, people are treating us a certain way, so we'll sin against them. That's our excuse, but that's not what Peter's saying. Peter's saying that suffering can actually cause us to be more like Jesus. So what he's saying in verse 1 is, since Christ suffered and died for sin, he said in verse 18 as well, sin has no more power over us. He removed the penalty and the power of sin. He dealt with sin by becoming atonement for sin. He triumphed over sin with all power and all authority. Therefore, Peter says, arm yourself with that same attitude. Be done with sin. We're not going to die for sin the way Jesus did, but Jesus set us free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. So no longer live, he says, according to human evil desires, but rather for the will of God. Because the sacrifice of Christ set us free. And we have a clean break from our past sinful desires. So look at verse 2. So as to, because Jesus set us free, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, walking around in the body, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So suffering unjustly in faith demonstrates that we've been freed from sin because by faith we would suffer rather than sin. That's what he's saying. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices, in other words, you know, you've already lived that way once before, doing what the Gentiles want to do, living sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinkings and parties, and lawless idolatries. What Peter's doing is between verses 2 and 3, he is contrasting evil desires and the will of God. You, you, can, you could go the will, uh, excuse me, the will of God on one hand, or you can follow the passions of of your sinful cravings. And, and in a real sense, I mean, if you think about this, if you're serious about sin in your life, you'll, you'll understand what I'm about to say. One does not have to choose lust. One does not have to choose lawless idolatry. One just has to give in. You know, it, 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 one just, just goes with the flow. There's the resistance of the Spirit of God and the will of God, and when we say no to that, we want to do what we want, we just let it go. Clark, uh, Pastor Clark, a uh, pastor in Philly, says this. There's no excuse of the will in the sense of weighing alternatives and positively choosing what seems to be best. One is just carried along by the current of self-gratifications. The restraints are simply released. What Peter is saying is, and what I think we know from experience is there needs to be a conscious decision empowered by the Spirit to walk in obedience to Christ. 
To go with the flow, to follow our own sinful cravings, only requires us letting go of the resistance. To go against the current requires resolve, requires strength. In fact, in verse 4, if you look, it says, Peter describes it as the flood of debauchery. It's, it's that flushing flood of going along with the, with, with the sin. And he lists them here. Sensuality means a lack of control, no moral restraint, particularly in the sexual arena. There's passions, the word lust, epithumia, it means uh, over-desire. It could be good, it could be bad. Here it's negative. Drunkenness. In the ancient world, as today, people drank wine. The problem wasn't the drinking of the wine, the problem was the excess. Orgies. Actually comes from a Greek word meaning village. Meaning a group of people gathering together and sexually partying, getting down. Drunken parties. That's obvious, right? <laughs> yeah. Right, breaking out the plastic lining garbage can, right, and throwing alcohol and fruit in it. Those big giant parties, lawless idolatry, practice of, of, of idolatry and, and worship of false gods during drinking and, and sexual parties, all going on in Peter's day. Actually, not only going on in Peter's day, it was something that was part of culture in that day. Many times, even in our own culture, people find it strange when you don't. And the point is, Christ's suffering and death has given us a new heart. Christ's suffering and death has given us a new heart and a new desire. He talks about being born again, born anew, having the heart and the DNA of God implanted in us. And he says, you know what? You could say no to that. You could live for the glory of God. That's true freedom of the will. See, as Christians, we've been set free from the power and the penalty of sin, and we can choose to listen and to follow and to obey the voice of God. Non-Christian, the Bible said, is dead in their trespasses and sin. They are by nature children of wrath, that they follow their own passions and desires. The only decision that they make is what sin am I going to choose today? But for believers in Christ who have been born anew, that have the Spirit of God dwelling within them, they have a choice to make. Listen to Jesus and follow His command or do and go along with the sinful cravings of my life. And He says, don't do that. Be encouraged. Don't live like you used to live. Choose to follow and obey God. Now, do we do it perfectly? That's not what he's saying. Because we don't. Sin does not reign anymore, R-E-I-G-N, but sin remains. And we fight with it. And the Bible says that it's by the Holy Spirit that we put the death, the deeds of the body. We can't do it. Verse 4. And when we do do it, when we do obey God, look at verse 4. It says, we respect to this, living in the passion of the sins. In other words, we're not doing it. We're not going along that way. They're surprised when, they, when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Peter's saying, you need to be different. And when you're different, they're, they're going to they're gonna notice. The Bible has a lot to say about being different and being missionaries. We talk about it all the time. Is that we're not supposed to Act the way everybody else acts, but we're not supposed to live separate lives either. Right? This elitism. We're Christians, you're not. We're going to heaven, you're going to hell. You know, we know the truth, you don't. So I don't want nothing to do with you. That's not what he's saying. And the problem, of course, with that kind of attitude is you f- we forget of the grace of God that we know the truth. We've embraced the truth. Our f- sins are forgiven. It's nothing we have done. It's through the sacrifice of Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone. And the reason that I'm alive and not in hell and not you know, condemned but forgiven, is by Jesus' substitutionary death. 
which means he died in my place. Where I belong, he was. Not anything I did. So treating people like that is, is, is a problem, and it, it's an affront to God, and it's a huge failure to see what grace really is. And, and, and before I leave this, I, let me just say, Christians who have been embraced by the gospel, who have been, you know, eyes have been opened by the gospel, who see the grace and the love of Jesus, sins are forgiven, by grace alone, should be the most inviting people on the planet. The most inviting people on the planet. Smiling face, handshake, inviting people in the planet. Because we were an enemy of God, and yet God invited us into His presence. What Peter's talking about is not separatism, but what Peter's talking about is syncretism. He's talking about going along with the flow. But those are two different ways that you can approach being a good missionary. What he's saying here is, there's times in your life that you're going to look different, that your goals are going to be different, your desires are going to be different, you're going to live life differently, and you're going to respond to suffering differently than people who don't have hope in Christ. Notice I said responding to suffering. I didn't say not to suffer. Because the Christianity that's labeled that you will always be happy, that you'll never have pain, hardship, trials, and difficulty is not biblical Christianity. Just look at the cross. Jesus was perfect. He was then hated, maligned, rejected, beaten, and not to mention crucified. I would say that's hardship, pain, trials, and difficulties. That's what I would say. And like Jesus, you should not shock us when people talk trash about us when we won't join in their sinful practices. Now, we should not join in. We should say no respectfully and humbly, but we should say no. Always remember, and I love this phrase, but for the grace of God, there go I. I'm reminded sometimes, I see things on television, and this has been recently. Um, I see things on television, I see people on, in television, and I'm going to judge them, the way they look, the way they live, and I think, I had no decision on what house I was going to be born in. And I often think I could have been born in that circumstance, in that situation, in that house, in that country, in that land. I mean, I had no, I didn't decide, you know what, I think I'll pick that family. Quite honestly, I, my kids probably wouldn't pick their family, I wouldn't pick the family I was born in, right? Many of you are like, if I had a choice, I would maybe, you know, I don't know. We didn't have that option. And it reminds me of the grace of God and the sovereignty of God that, uh, you know, He's in charge, I'm not. In Peter's day, as a man by the name of, I wrote it down here, John, John Barclay, he's a professor of, professor of divinity school in uh, Durham in the UK, and he, he talks about what it was like in that day to be um, rejected as, as a Christian. This is what he writes. Family members who broke ancestral traditions on the basis of their newfound faith showed an appalling lack of concern for their familial responsibilities. They're like, dude, you're walking away from your whole family when you become a Christian. He says, Christians deserted ancestral practices, passed on since the time of their immemorial, in other words, beyond memory, for a novel religion of recent manufacture. In other words, they become Christians. This is brand new. He says, the exclusivity of the Christian's religion... Their arrogant refusal to take part in or to consider valid the worship of any other god but their own deeply wounded public sensibilities. Such an unnatural and ungrateful attitude to the gods, small g, to the gods even branded them as an atheist. Can you imagine? I love Jesus. I worship Jesus. You're an atheist. How's that so? Well, there's 27 gods out here and you should love them all. No, just one. You're an atheist. That's what he says. 
Moreover, it was highly dangerous for even one segment of the community to slight the other gods, whose wrath was ever to be feared. Civic peace, the success of agriculture, and the freedom from earthquakes or floods were regularly attributed to the benevolence of the gods. In other words, you turn to Christ and you worship Him alone, we're going to have floods. There's all kinds of gods out there that are just not going to be happy, not realizing that Christ is the ruler of all things and creator of all things, Colossians 1. So, went from, they think, one idol to the other idol, making other idols angry. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know what, our culture, you know, we may not have temple worship, but we got sporting events, we've got, you know, sex shows, we got, you know, uh, bars, and we got concerts, we've got elementary school where we go and worship our kids. Just change the idols. Just change the idols. Tell your friend, Christ is most important to me, even in my family, it's Christ. That, that, you know, they'll be like, are you, are you kidding? Like, no, I'm not kidding. Because that's the gift. He's the giver of the gift. And I worship Him alone. And my first priority in my life is obedience to Jesus because He gave His life for me. And they'll say, you're weird. Some of you might be weird anyway, but that's a different story. But if you say that, you'll be weird. Nobody wants to be a weirdo. Peter's like, listen, if you don't go along with that flood of the debauchery, people are going to... Malign you. Join the club. And he says, you know, those who live that way, verse 5, don't realize they're going to come into judgment. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter was saying, and those people in that day saying, you know what, you're a Christian, you won't do any of this. And you know what, you just died. And this person who did all that, they're dead. I guess there's no big difference. He's like, no, 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 no. He's judging the living and the dead. So just because you're dead doesn't mean you're escaping judgment. You're going to give an account for your life. And when he talks about believers, it's the gospel is preached to those who are now dead. So in other words, believers have trusted in Christ and have fallen asleep. And in the presence of Christ, their sins were judged at Calvary. But they nonetheless are going to, we're all going to stand before God, forgiven by Jesus or not forgiven by Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. And we, as believers in Christ, who have sins have been forgiven because of our trust in Christ, will live in the spiritual realm where God is. We're saved from final judgment and condemnation. But believers in that day, non-believers in that day, were just going, look, man, you live, you drink, you die. Everybody. I was listening to a show. This morning, coming here early in the morning, and I just happened to turn on talk radio, and you know, it's like 4.30, you know what, what's on at 4.30 in the morning, like weirdos, right? And I just happened to catch a show, and the guy was talking about spirituality, I thought, oh, this is good, and he has it all figured out. He has it all figured out. Your spirit, it leaves, it, it leaves off all the junk, it goes, and he's, and he's explaining all that. I think it was a tape show, I was waiting for the phone number, I was going to call it in if I could. Uh, I'm like, how do you know that? Like, how do you know what you're saying? It's all theories. And I want to say, I do know, and it's not a theory. Because Jesus Christ went and died. He experienced death, came back, and told us all about it. So we have someone who's actually experienced death and resurrection and life afterwards, and we know now for sure. 
So death, he tells Peter, says, doesn't change the fact that judgment will come and folks who rejected Christ and persecuted Christians are eternally mistaken to think that because we all die, that's the end of it. So if you think you're here and you're not going to stand before God someday, that when you die, you just go into that box and you paint it up like a clown, that's not the end of life. We're going to give an account to our Creator. That's why Jesus came. To pay the penalty for your sin. To die in your place and to atone for your sins. That's why he came. The ones with the most toys does not win. Right? It may appear that way. But it appears that way. But the reality is the end is at at near. The end of all things at hand. Look at at verse 7. The end of all things at hand, therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. When Peter talks about the end is at hand, he's talking about that time between death of Christ and the resurrection, excuse me, death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. Folks, that's the end times. We're in the end times. Don't listen to those guys who want your money and I could tell you a day and time and all that nonsense. When Jesus rose from the grave, the end time has begun. When he's coming back, we don't know. But when the Bible talks about the end times or the end is at hand, it doesn't mean we should start looking out our window and looking up or meeting in Yankee Stadium and waiting for the Lord's return. Okay? Don't do that. We're living in the last days. God promised the Messiah. He came. He's coming back before Christ, after Christ, last days. That's what he's saying. And what Peter goes on to say, he gives us four instructions on how we should live, knowing that the time is at hand. All things are, are coming to an end. I've said this before, how you perceive eternity changes the way you live today. I know you don't think so. As I said before, if two men were given a menial, cheap, lousy job and told to do it every day, and at the end of the year you'll get $15,000 and he tells to the other man at the end of the year, well, I'll give you $15 million, you will start that job very differently. Right? Fifteen million, I'll do it. Every day, no problem. Light bulbs in a box, all day long. Bring them. 24 hours a day, don't matter. $15,000 a year, you kidding me? I can't even, you know, pay my rent. It's going to be different. See how you perceive eternity matters. And Peter says, because you are seeing eternity through the eyes of Jesus and His hope and His promise, He gives us four things. First one is be sober-minded or self-controlled. It means to be calm and sound and, and, and have good thinking, vigorous thinking, self-control. Be sober-minded, he says also. The word related back to what he said in chapter 1, verse 13, has to do with, with uh, not just alcohol being non-sober, but, but has to do with weighing matters, thinking things through. So I thought about that this week. I reminded of a, of a man I used to work with, bless his heart. He was a sergeant in, in the correction department where he used to work. And, and we, we, would have, we would have like... Heck breaking loose, and he'd be as calm as can be. But if you ever walked into the bathroom and saw a garbage can without a plastic cover on it, he would explode. <laughs> he'd take the garbage, kick it, slam it, bang the desk. I'm like, what's going on, Sarge? No plastic liner. I'm like, like ten people got stabbed as a riot going on. Oh, we'll take care of it. Like, didn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, he was just explosive. That's what he's talking about. Don't be explosive. Way matters. Right? That's what he's talking about. What's so interesting, though, is that Paul says, have sober-mindedness, be clear in your thinking, think wisely, 
not so you could make heart, you know, make decisions, not so that you could share your faith, not because you're facing something and, and you think clearly says that you should do that. Why? He says, to pray. To pray. See, when your mind wanders, we wander into sin, and when we sin, we aren't able to pray. And in order for us to, to go upstream and not give in to the lust of the flesh and the way in which everyone's going, we need to have strength. Prayer is vital for the man and woman of God. It's the heartbeat of the intimacy with God. It is the pinnacle expression that we belong to our God is through prayer. And Peter doesn't mention this first so he could, you know, just for no reason. He mentions it because it's not a supplement. It is foundational for the life of believers. There's a scene in the movie, The Titanic, illustrates what the world thinks about prayer. As the ship is about to split in two, causing the ends of the ship to, to rise sharply. And, and Leonardo di Capriccio uh, keeps his wits and he grabs Rose and he goes to the stern and to avoid sliding into certain death. But what he does, he passed by a priest who's praying and reading Scripture to a small band of people. And a lot of people approach prayer that way. When all heck broke loose, I've tried everything else, let me pray. I want to encourage you to pray. Even if all heck is breaking loose and it is your last resort, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying that shouldn't be approach for us as believers in Christ. You know, there are times that we feel we need to pray. There are times that we want to pray. But it goes beyond that. It's the discipline of prayer. I'm a doer. I like to do things. I need to hear this. Before I get to doing, I need to get to praying. Community group leaders, pray. Make sure you're spending time in prayer in your community group. I need to spend more time in prayer. I'm a doer. So I like to get busy. Give me a task. Start doodling. Write my lists. I need to put my pencil down and pray. Call the church to, for prayer. Call the church to prayer. Not because we have to. Because we get to. Because we get to. We have access into the presence of God, intimacy with the infinite one. I think Peter is saying that the strength of our prayer life is an indication of our progress in self-control and being sober-minded, making good decisions, being God-centered. Kenneth Weiss, he's a Greek scholar, says, The Christian who is always on a tear, whose mind is crowded with fears and worry, who is never at rest in his heart, does not much pray. There's an old saying, maybe some of you heard it. The Bible keeps you from sin and sin keeps you from the Bible. Heard that before? How about prayer? Prayer keeps you from sin. Sin keeps you from prayer. Turn to Matthew 26 with me quickly before we leave this uh, point. Matthew 26. Matthew, first of the four accounts of Jesus' life. Matthew 26. Now, who's given us this instruction? Peter, right? He's in First Peter. Matthew 26 is a time that Jesus in Gethsemane. Who's with Peter? Excuse me, who's with Jesus? I gave it up already. <laughs> Peter. That was easy. Who else? James and John. The sons of Zebedee. Good. All right. Night before his crucifixion, in the garden, verse 36, Jesus went to a place in Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, Sit here. I'm going to go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be in sorrowful and troubled. 
Then he said to my, uh, said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it possible, let not this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In other words, Lord, if there's any other way, I'd love to, to not do this. Temptation there, I think, as well. But not my will. I'm going to obey you. I, I, I'm not going to do anything but the course you've set before me. Right? Verse 40. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time he went and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sin. Arise, let us go, be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. What's noteworthy about this passage, not only is Peter the one saying this, or Peter is the one that was there, but Peter used the same word Jesus used in verse 45, is at hand. Jesus says, the hour is at hand. Peter says, the end is at hand. Picking up the words of Jesus in that day, remembering that incident, I believe, in the back of his mind that it's at hand. The end is at hand. So, pray, Peter's saying, almost to say, like, don't be like me. I went to sleep. I took a nap. I didn't watch and pray. And so that I did enter into temptation. In fact, that's very within hours. Do you know that man? Not I. Do you know that man? Not I. You have to be that guy. No, not me. And the rooster crows. Should we pray, Peter? Yes. The body is weak. Spirit is willing. Pray. Temptation will come. Pray. Pray before temptation comes. Pray. Pray for boldness. Pray for your opportunity. Pray that God changes your heart. Pray that you'll be a good missionary. Pray that you'll love those who persecute you. Pray with clarity and, and, and sober thinking. Pray so you can submit to governing authorities. Pray that you can submit to your boss. Pray for each other. Pray for your pastors. Pray that the pain and the persecution and suffering that you're going through will not deter you and cause you to sin, but that you would give glory to God through it. Pray. Sober supplication. Final point is sincere service. Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. What's the mark of true Christianity? Love. Love. By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another, Jesus said. How much more in a time of suffering that this agape, self-sacrificial love is evident among His people. The word earnest is a Greek word that talks about or gives a picture of someone stretching, an athlete stretching for the finish line. Someone stretches toward the goal. And he says, love them earnestly. Stretch out to, to love others. It's, it's self-sacrificial. It's, it's not selfish. It, it's giving. It's stretching to meet others. It's intense. It's sincere love. That's what he's talking about. It's something that we have to work for. It's something we have to strive in by yielding to the Spirit through prayer, just like an athlete has to work on his skills. It's not a matter of just emotions. It's a will. It's an act of the will. Christian love 
centers on the way which Christ loves us, we are to love one another. And according to Peter, it covers a multitude of sins. That's a great verse. We know Peter's not saying that it atones for sin. Only Jesus can atone for sin. What Peter is saying is that love covers a multitude of sin the way the proverb says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So hatred stirs up strife, but love covers offenses. That's Proverbs 10. Proverbs 19 says, Good sense-making, one is slow to anger, and it is a glory to overlook an offense. So peace is love, genuinely, earnestly loving one another. Dr. White, he's a Greek expositor, says this is what a person looks like under the control of godly love. He said, when a private, personal injury has been done to him as though nothing had occurred, in this way, by simply ignoring the unkind act or the unsulting word, he brings the evil thing to an end. It dies and leaves no seed. Love covers a multitude of sin. It doesn't perpetuate the sin. It doesn't perpetuate the hatred. It doesn't perpetuate the unforgiveness. It doesn't perpetuate disunity in the church. It puts an end to it. Peter writes in 122, Love one another from a pure heart since you've been born again. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, How does that love manifest itself? Put off malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and backbiting. So love is just not an emotion. Just a fuzzy feeling. Love does not even condone sin. If we love somebody, we don't want to see them or her live in sin and hurt others and hurt themselves. Rather, love covers. And that love motivates us to speak the truth in love, to forgive offenses rather than spread unforgiveness and bitterness. Because when bitterness and strife and malice infect the body, gossip, hatred, disunity cause the church not to reflect Christ. So love actually extinguishes sin and its effect within the community by not retaliating the same way. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to give you what God has given me, and that's grace and mercy and forgiveness. So to, to love above all things, literally before all things, has to do with not, not acting the same way and, and potentially carrying on and doing more and more damage to the community. Love one another from the heart. Loving one another also has to do with, look what he says, serving one another through hospitality, through using your spiritual gifts. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another. Now remember, ancient times, no Motel 6, we're not keeping a porch light on for you. Right? We're not doing that. You're going to go to a community, you have no place to live, you're going to wait in the courtyard and in, in the town square for some nice, kind soul to come along and say you could stay with them. There was interaction, they want to know about you. You'd have to wait in that day. And I believe the word strangers, first of all, uh, hospitality means lover of strangers. So most has to do with people you don't know. But in this context, he's saying strangers being believers. I think because believers are being persecuted and run out of town, they would show up in another town and other believers, Peter's saying, love them. I know they're strangers to you, but they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Show hospitality. Open your door to them. Love them. Invite them in. Care for them. Encourage them. Strengthen them. That's what he's saying. I'll never forget my first weekend in a Protestant church after I came to faith. Strung out. I mean, I just I was I was a terror. And I walked in this place. It's called New City Evangelical Free Church. Pastor John Cherigley is still a friend of mine. Twenty five years later, this older couple saw me come in. I must have looked like a wreck. I got to tell you, right? I mean, you think I look bad now? I was really bad back then. And they they spotted me. They came right over to me. I said, "Who are you?" I told them who I was. 
I shared a part of my story. I said, you know what? Why don't you, why, what are you doing right now after the service? I said, I'm going out. Come on over to my house for lunch. They didn't even know me. I knew I liked to eat. Pretty good. That's prophecy right there. Although they made pancakes. Not a real pancake guy. But anyway, I remember, I remember distinctively sitting in her house 25, 26 years ago. It was the love they had for me and their opening of their home. They didn't even know me. And I got to share my story. I thought my story was going to scare the hell out of them. Excuse me, but the heck out of them. Um, you know, like you could get out now. You know what I mean? Hit me with some bat spray so I forgot where they live. You know, that kind of thing. But they listened to me. They became friends. I stayed at that church for the years I stayed in Rockland County. Um, because it was the hospitality. There are people that are in college. There are people that are, are single. There are people that are lonely. There are people that we could be a people that show hospitality toward one another. To love people, to invite people into your home. You don't need a whole lot of money. You could be in a dorm. You could be in a, in a house. You could be in an apartment. Showing hospitality goes a long way. He says, do it without grumbling. So when a doorbell rings, don't go, oh, I forgot I invited them over. <laughs> or you turn to your spouse, well, I told you. You know, that's, he said, do without grumbling. Don't grumble when you do it. The reason we shouldn't grumble when we do it, I think, is because we were alienated from God. We were separated from God. And God showed His kindness toward us. God opened His home to us. God showed His love toward us and hospitality toward us. Therefore, we should always not forget that. If the gospel, He invites us into His family. We should remember that. And we won't grumble. We share goodness, God's goodness, with others through our homes. Because God has shared His home and His goodness to us. How do we do it? Through acts of service. Verse 10. As each one has received the gift, charisma, grace gift, that's literally what it means, a gift of grace. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. We talked about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians when we went through that. The Bible says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 4, that there are varieties of gifts but the same spirit. Here he talks about the, the varied, pokalos. It's where we get the word polka dot, of multicolored. He said there's a multicolored fashion of, of grace and gifts among the people of God. He said in chapter 1, verse 6, that there are multiple pokilois trials. Now he says there's multiple pokilois grace. I love it. There's enough. God knows the need. God knows the body. God knows the church. And He has provided for us uh, 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 gifts that we can serve one another. An important thing is, not what gift you have, at least here in First Peter. Peter's not pointing to that. Paul talks about the gifts and labels them in, in Corinthians and in Romans. Peter's concern is the purpose of the gifts, not what they are. The definition that we have here at King's Chapel of, of, a, of a spiritual gift is this. It's an ability sovereignly given by God, not something you choose, an ability sovereignly given by God to believers for the glory of God. Sovereignly given for God's glory, for the building up of the body, for ministry, and for the advancement of the kingdom. Not about you. It's not self-exaltation, it's not self-advancement, and it is not attention giver. Okay? The guy that walks around the stage knocking people down, and so everybody rushes up to him, and, and what a great guy he is, is not the advancement, and not the spiritual gifts that he's talking about. It's about serving, loving, caring, and, and, and edifying people, like Jesus, who came what? To serve or to be served? He came to serve, not to be served. And gave his life as a ransom for many. Peter mentions two gifts really here. Or broad categories of gifts. 
speaking and serving. You speak, speak the oracles of God. That word is the word logion, meaning the sayings of God. Preaching, teaching, children's church, inviting people to come in from the door, uh, hospitality team, people come in. Speaking, you're in the presence and you're speaking for God as people come into the church. Here's a bulletin, go sit down. You know, that's not really... Doesn't really work that way, right? So he says, if you're going to speak, speak as if you are speaking for the Lord. Teach, preach, encourage, prophecy, whatever it is, speaking gifts, speak as you're speaking for God. Serving, serve one another. Showing mercy and encouragement where we get the word deacon, diakonos, to serve. And how do we do it? Whose strength? Our own? No. How many times do we say, you know what, I can't do that? No, not me. I, I, just, I just can't. Well, you can't. You're right. I don't want to say, you're right, you can't do it. God can do it. I've had more people say to me, you know what, I would love to do that. I just, I don't know if I could. I'm like, great, that's a great place to be. Because if you think you could, I really don't want you to do it. If you think God's calling you and you can't, that's good. Because He will give you the strength to do it. I'm good with that. So God will give you the strength to do it. If you go on our website, kingschapel.net, the place, serve. Click on serve, it'll open up and give you a, a, a list of things for serving the church. You can click on, it says spiritual assessment. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, you can, you can put that in your browser and a spiritual assessment page will open up for you. You can look at, see what your gifts are. Do you know what your gift is? If you've been a Christian a while, you should know what your gifts are. Uh, but I will tell you, if you don't know what it is and you want to know what it is, the best way to do it, serve. Find a need, serve. God will show you what your gift is. If you think it's singing, everybody leaves the church when you get up to sing, it's not your gift. <laughs> but you're serving and that's a good thing. Okay? But you can't sit back. That's the difference between those who use their spiritual gifts and those who don't. Those who use their spiritual gifts are like, you know what, I'm not just going to sit here. I'm going to serve somewhere. I'm not quite sure, but God will show me. Being in church a long time, don't know. You, know. you know what? You won't know. Finally, to close, Peter writes worship. Steve, Peter steps back in a, in a, in a, in a, in a praise. 11b. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Folks, I take the word everything to mean everything. I know that's theologically sound, but everything. So that means we are to suffer to bring God glory in it. We are to live sanctified lives, not acting in the sinful passions of our old ways, so that when others see our good deeds, they will glorify our Father in heaven. We are to think soberly and pray with sound thinking so that God looks glorious. We are to love each other and serve one another so that others will see the goodness and the kindness of God toward us. We are to love and serve one another. Glorifying God in the midst of suffering, in the midst of being persecuted for good, in the midst of loving and serving so that God is seen as glorious to you. He is your ultimate value. He is beautiful. He is precious. And He is all satisfying. John Piper likes to say, the greatest way to show that someone satisfies your heart is to keep on rejoicing in them when all other supports for your satisfaction are falling away. When you keep rejoicing in God in the midst of suffering, it shows that God and not other things is the greatest source of your joy. 
Does He take away persecution? Not always. Does He take away suffering? Not always. Is He enough in the midst of it? Always. Always. And that makes look God look glorious. No matter the rejection, no matter what the persecution is, no matter the suffering, no matter what it is, let us love one another, let us serve one another. Let us reflect the preciousness of our God and Savior. We're going to respond in a song. All I have is Christ. The band can come up. Give me one more minute, everybody else. All I have is Christ. I was once lost in darkness night, yet thought I knew the way. My sin promised me joy. It led me to the grave. I had no hope. I rebelled against your will, but you had not loved me. I would have never loved you. I ran from my hellbound race, uh, indifferent to the cost. You looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. I behold God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I have is grace. I want to be yours, Lord. I want the strength to follow from your commands. It's not something that I do. It's something that you do for me. So use my ransom life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be. My only boast is you. Wherever you are in your life today, I don't know. Many of you. But I know this. God is enough. And whatever God's been calling on your heart to let go, to give to Him, to surrender to Him, let's do that as we sing, All I Have is Christ. And if you've never invited Christ in, I implore you as the Scriptures say, turn from your sin and turn to Christ. He will forgive you of your sins and invite you into His family. So we're going to respond together in corporate worship. We'll give our tithes and offering on the last song. And let's together corporately, maybe for the first time, sing with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength that all we really have is Christ and He's enough. Father, thank You for Jesus. Thank You so much for Your goodness and mercy toward us. Suffering hurts. Pain is hard. Life can be arduous. There's no question. It was for Jesus. Father, we pray by the work of your Spirit, you would draw us into your presence. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So even in the midst of hard times, trials, and difficulties, we can rejoice in Jesus, knowing that our sins are forgiven, knowing that this suffering will not last forever, and knowing that our eternity has been secured in you, kept by the omnipotent power of the Father. Help us to respond, Lord, that shows our all-satisfying sufficiency is in you alone. And we pray that you would fuel our singing with the work of your Spirit. In Jesus' good name, amen.